Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason. And with me today, we have an extremely special guest. He is a four-time All-NBA, four-time All-Star, Basketball Hall of Famer, and the author of the new book, Game Face. Uh, welcome to the show, Bernard King. Thank you very much, Jason. It's a pleasure to be here. So your new book, Game Face, comes out on November 7th, which, of course, documents your life and career. What's a message or a theme that you'd like for readers to get out of Game Face? Well, I think more than anything, um, during the course of my career and most of my life, I've been seen in the public venue, um, whether it was on the court or doing many other things. Uh, however, I think that in general, I've been an enigma and people haven't really known Bernard. And I think that there's a core message here that uh, regardless of uh, any obstacles that you may face in life and the adversities, this book is for you. Uh, if you're looking for love, this book is for you. If you're looking to be motivated, this book is for you. So there's many messages within the story. There's stories within the story. And um, that's my feeling and that's my thought. You write about a lot of personal stuff, uh, whether it's about overcoming obstacles with uh, family struggles or dealing with racism, especially police harassment in Tennessee or uh, going through alcohol addiction and uh, recovery and, of course, your severe injury when you played with the Knicks that put you out of the NBA for nearly two years. Is it hard to share so much of yourself for public consumption? Uh, no, it's not. Uh, I've been approached for many years about writing a book. And my belief and thought is if you're not going to be open, don't write a book, Jason. And um, I wanted to uh, reveal and convey uh, my life story as I see it and as I think about it and share that with uh, with the general public uh, with the idea in mind that uh, not only will it be something that will be enjoyable and uh, a fun read, uh, but it's something that also may help people tremendously. Was there any part of your career or your life that you hadn't thought much about in a long time in the process of writing the book that you enjoyed uh, reexamining or thinking about again? Well, I, I've been in the public eye for many years beyond my retirement, uh, so I haven't gone away. <laughs> and uh, so I've had ample opportunity to uh, think about my, my career. Uh, that's something that's a constant is something that will remain with me for the rest of my life. When I say a constant, certainly not when I'm at home in my own personal space with my family. Uh, however, I hear about it as I travel around the country. Someone may remind me about a game I played or we played as a, as a team. Uh, so that's something that's uh, not very difficult uh, for me uh, to reexamine. Obviously, there are areas that I uh, may Eh, may not remember all the particulars of it. I have to really sit down and think about it. Uh, but I wanted to bring all of that together. That's who I am. That's part of my being. And I, I wanted to share all of that uh, with, with the general public. Uh, you write about how you had an uh, analytical approach to basketball, even from a young age, uh, piecing the game together like a puzzle in terms of what moves you used and where you found your spots on the floor. Uh, did you find that made you different from most other players? That's a aspect of basketball, as I viewed it and thought about it, that you will never hear from anyone else. That was very unique to uh, who I am as a being and my style of play. And that was my approach to basketball. And had it not been, 
I don't believe I would have achieved the success that I did on, on the floor. It, uh, it allowed me to see the court in, in a different way, but more importantly, it allowed me to play at a very consistent and high level. And I'm an analytical person. That's who I am at heart. And anything that I do that I deem that's very challenging, that will be my approach and has always been my approach. The aspect that you don't know, and most people don't know, is I never wanted to share it. <laughs> and I didn't want my I didn't want my competition to know my strengths. <laughs> well, that's completely understandable. Uh, you don't want to give anyone a, a competitive advantage. Uh, now it doesn't matter so much, of course, but uh, back then you want to uh, take every advantage that you can get. I think it does, however, is it gives the uh, the reader an insight into my thought process, how I view things, how I think about things in general, and specifically how I think about basketball, how I think about life. And so it gives a lens eye view into who I am, Bernard, and uh, that's something otherwise uh, the public doesn't know when they when they meet. Who are some players that you looked up to growing up or that you measured yourself against earlier in your career, and uh, what did you take from them? Jason, the playing professionally at the level that uh, I was very fortunate and blessed enough to play at, you don't look up to anyone. You, you look up to players perhaps uh, before you join the NBA ranks. Right. And you have a great deal of respect, and as you know, and admiration uh, toward uh, the great players that, that came before. And any time you have an opportunity to meet them or to speak to them, it's, it's a joy. Uh, however, uh, once you enter the NBA and enter those lines on the floor, you enter the court, I respect no one. But off the floor, I respect everyone. And my thought has always been uh, that uh, you can't be a friend with someone you play against. And that was my thought when I played at the time. And that, that's how I rose through the ranks of the NBA. Yeah, I, I believe you shared a story in the book about how, you know, at one point when you were a rookie, you uh, did you were friendly briefly with uh, Maurice Lucas uh, on the other <laughs> team and realized that that was not a good idea. Well, Jason, Maurice, bless his soul. He was such a wonderful guy. I had an opportunity to get to know him and train with him uh, in between collegiately at Tennessee and playing professionally. We were in McLean, Virginia together, and I uh, had an opportunity to get to know him very well. We would dine together and play ball together. Uh, and so when the season began, I thought, let me say hello to Maurice on the court. And that was a mistake. He hit me so hard, Jason, coming across the lane. And uh, he wasn't trying to hurt me, but it was a physical game. He was sending me a message, and not tonight. And so consequently, I never spoke to anyone else again on the court from that day forward. After you starred at the University of Tennessee with Ernie Grunfeld, of course, uh, you came into the NBA in a very uh, unsettled time. It was uh, right after the ABA era. There have been lots of growth in terms of expansion, much more player movement, um, and you know, guys like you and Adrian Dantley and Alex English, future Hall of Famers, all moved around a lot in early in your career. It took you guys a long time to find a settled situation. Uh, were you um, ever envious of stars who came in like Bird and Magic, who were immediately in stable situations where... You know, you came in with the Nets and played for the Jazz and a little bit with the Warriors where those teams were all kind of in rebuilding mode. 
No, not whatsoever. You're living a dream. Every day that you take the court, whether it's in practice or during a game, you're living a dream. And whether that dream is in Golden State or in New York, it's a dream. Now, obviously, New York is the highest level of that dream. Uh, however, the league was in transition, as you pointed out. There was a merger between the ABA and the NBA. You had great players. You had a superstar, stars among stars in Dr. J. But you also had George Irving and Artis Gilmore and Rick Barry and so many other great, great ABA players that entered the league. And so the league took on a different tone in terms of style of play and, and movement of players, uh, really trying to shake out the tree, so to speak, as to where the league was going moving forward. So it was really a fantastic time in, in terms of being a basketball fan, uh, because now you've had all the great players joined in one league. And for me, uh, obviously, it was very competitive at my position uh, with the greats of the greats in, in, in the game. During my career, Jason, I played against 51 Hall of – I counted it once. I played against 51 Hall of Famers during the course of my career. And uh, many of them was during that early period, but across my entire career. So it was a challenging time in terms of uh, basketball, but I loved it. I loved it. I was able to compete on a nightly basis with my uh, skill sets. So your first stop in uh, New Jersey with the Nets, they just actually moved to New Jersey. Uh, they were almost like an expansion team. They had uh, uh, sold out Dr. J's contract for financial reasons, and you were kind of the next big star going in there. And I think the comparisons between you and Dr. J were inevitable. And you write about the first time that you battled uh, him and the uh, Sixers and performed really well. And I'm sure there was a lot of uh, motivation to uh, play well against him. Well, the only thing that we had in common is the same shoe size. Dr. <laughs> 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 J was the standard of basketball. Uh, he was con considered by many uh, the greatest player on the planet. And he was looking to establish the fact that he was a great player himself in the NBA coming out of the ABA. And as a young player, as a rookie at 21 years old, to go up against the player at your position that is considered not only the standard at your position, but perhaps the greatest player in the game, uh, that was interesting and challenging and exciting. All of those things mixed into the mix. And I was excited about it. I prepared properly for it. And uh, unfortunately, we, we lost the game. However, uh, as I recall correctly, uh, in the book, uh, it was stated, uh, I scored 42 points. And you know what that's like at 20 years old against Dr. J, Jason? <laughs> I can only imagine how exciting that would be. You uh, talked about the Hall of Famers that you played against, but you didn't play with that many Hall of Famers during your career. You did play a year with Moses Malone later on in uh, Washington, but uh, one instance where you did play with Hall of Famers, albeit very briefly, was with the uh, Utah Jazz and Adrian Dantley and Pistol Pete Maravich, who was at the very end of his career. And I know you didn't play together for very long, and it uh, was a difficult uh, time for you and for the team. But was there ever any moment with the uh, three of you where you could kind of see the uh, talent there and maybe maybe a special moment that came from that? Well, no, it was very brief, and in part 
in partly why um, I was injured. I, I injured myself, and so I didn't have an opportunity to uh, spend any time really with that organization or nor play with those particular players. So you write about how after that uh, you went into a rehab for alcohol addiction and you were able to uh, rebuild your career with uh, the Golden State Warriors and coach uh, Al Adels, and you had a really interesting team there with uh, World Be Free and Joe Barry Carroll and John Lucas. You were able to win the uh, Comeback Player of the Year. And um, your time with the Warriors maybe isn't as quite as well known as your time with the uh, Knicks. What are uh, some memories that uh, stand out for you? That that particular team at, at that time was the most talented team I ever played on. Uh, you had World Be Free, as you indicated. Uh, he, he was a great, great basketball player. And there was an inc- incredible scorer. Had led the league in scoring, in fact. was Came out of the 76ers with Dr. J in that particular team. And then you spoke about Joe Barry Carroll, you know, a very uh, good, good young center who had been acquired uh, from uh, in a trade, not a trade, but during the draft. Uh, trade uh, between Boston Celtics and Robert Parrish. Uh, we get uh, Joe Barry Carroll in return and, and Ricky Brown as well. But we had Sonny Parkin and we had uh, Mike Gal. And we, we had some very talented players on that team. So it was an exciting time to play for an organization in the Western Conference. And it was a distinct difference, obviously, between the East at that time and the West in terms of style of play very wide open, fast break basketball. And we had a great coach in Al Adels, and it was a great environment for me in terms of uh, living in, in, in the Bay Area and uh, was uh, accepted with open arms, and I, and I loved it. But. So you joined the Knicks as a free agent, and you've got a, uh, a pretty talented cast there. You're reunited with your old uh, teammates, Ernie Grunfeld, and there's Bill Cartwright, uh, Truck Robinson, Marvin Webster, Rory Sparrow, uh, Paul Westfall toward the end of his career. One thing that you wrote about that I thought was really interesting was uh, dealing with Hubie Brown, who was a brilliant coach. Uh, obviously, I think he's well known for his broadcasting. Anyone who listens to him realizes how smart he is about basketball and strategy, but um, he was verbally abusive to his uh, players. And the way that you dealt with that, confronting him while being cognizant not to undermine the coach for the rest of the team, that seems like a really uh, tricky balance and and was a really interesting look at some of the dynamics that you have to deal with in the locker room. And probably your analytical approach to things probably served you well in that situation. Well, I was very thoughtful about the potential of the situation occurring with QB Brown. I gave that consideration before I even joined uh, the New York Knicks. In, in fact, at one point, uh, after being offered the contract, the offer sheet, I contemplated uh, not even signing with the Knicks. But I, I really wanted to play home. Uh, I really wanted to play for the team that I dreamed of. And I, I knew that that may occur uh, with Hubie, and it, and it did. And uh, I also had to balance the fact that I came in as an all-pro. I, I came in as the leader of the team 
from, from day one, at least from the offensive standpoint, then you have to prove yourself as an individual to your teammates. So, in fact, they will allow you to lead. And uh, that had not transpired yet because we had seven new guys on the team. Uh, so I, I just felt that I had to face the situation uh, head on with Hubie. Um, I'm, I'm not I'm not accustomed to anyone speaking to me in, in that way, in an inflammatory uh, way, uh, using profanity toward me in a very strong way and in a very verbally degrading way. Um, and I just felt that in speaking to him as a one-on-one person, as a man-to-man, addressing it without affecting the team in a negative way to make sure that no one else is in earshot of the conversation, it, it was handled. And I have always said, Hubie is, as you know, Jason, one of the greatest coaches in the world that's ever coached a game. And it was a joy for me to play for Hubie. And he and I uh, were the same. We were both analytical people, and we sort of game within the game. And that's why we were able to uh, merge our uh, skills, he as coach and I as player. But you always allow a coach to coach, and you play the game. When you're at your absolute peak is in uh, 84 and uh, 85, you're uh, all NBA first team playing at an MVP level. Uh, you lead the league in scoring and uh, back-to-back 50-point games on the uh, Texas uh, road trip. And you had really intense playoff battles against the uh, the Pistons and the Celtics against the uh, Pistons. You uh, broke a uh, points record for a uh, five-point series in a classic back-and-forth series. And another classic uh, series against the uh, Celtics where you take them to uh, seven games and fall just short. Did I really do all of that? I think you did. (laughs) That was you. (laughs) Yeah, you had uh, 213 points in that uh, five-game series against the uh, Pistons. Uh, They weren't quite the bad boys yet, but they had Isaiah and Lambeer and were on their way there. And, of course, uh, battling against those 84 uh, Celtics with Bird uh, basically at his peak. And you and the Knicks really gave them an incredible challenge that year. I feel like there's something about uh, your game and those couple seasons in particular that has really resonated and lingered with uh, Knicks fans, even though it was you know relatively short period in the team's history. What do you think it is about your game and that period has you know resonated with fans and you know considered one of the glory periods in team history? Well, around the world. Uh, obviously, New York City is the crown jewel of the world in many, many ways. And that's how we're perceived as New Yorkers and the city as a whole around the world. But New York also is a gritty gritty city. It, there's a work ethic that exists in, in New York at the highest level. And the professionalism that exists at any level in New York City is unsurpassed anywhere else in the world. And the everyday working person as well has that quality. And I believe that I represented all of that in terms of my time in New York City. And I think really that's what resonates with fans. The way I played the game represented the way the city actually is and how you live within the city at any level, whether it's the highest level of Wall Street, whether it's someone that's 
working in the sanitation area on the, on the street because I speak to all of them. I don't speak for them, but during my time and when I travel to New York, that's how I'm received by all levels of working people. And I am the city. I'm from Brooklyn. I am New York City. And I play with my heart on my sleeve. I gave it everything I had. And that's something that's still respected today, and I, I appreciate that. And you talk about the success that we, we had uh, during that time and my success. Every night I was going up against essentially a Hall of Fame at my position. And you speak about Larry Bird, you speak about Dr. J, you speak about Agent Dantley, you speak about Alex English, Dominic and, and the, every night was a nightmare <laughs> to face those guys. But I loved it. So in 1985, you are leading the league in scoring with uh, 32.9 points per game. And uh, you're uh, later in the season, you're in uh, Kansas City. And unfortunately, you suffer a devastating knee injury that puts you out of the league for about two years. And you actually wrote that that injury would prove to be the best thing that ever happened to you. Uh, what do you think it was about you that was able to overcome an injury that no one else had been able to overcome before in the NBA and still have several years after that of being a very productive player, eventually an all-star again? That that challenged the very core of, of who I am as, as a man and as an individual, as a person. That I had to bring every single positive quality about my person, about my being, about who Bernard is, to bear, to face that challenge. And I thought back to how I used to run and train as 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 a young kid, as a young person growing up in Brooklyn, running across the Brooklyn Bridge with my thumbs up. And the toughness that that required to play on the playgrounds of Brooklyn three on three, I thought about all of those moments of difficulty that I had as a young person growing up. And I utilized all of that to understand that if I could get through and face and achieve through spite of, in spite of all of those challenges, and I can handle this ultimate challenge because that's what it was, the ultimate challenge that no one, no one, I'll repeat, no one, Jason, had ever come back from that injury in any significant way. And I made it a challenge to face it every day head on, knowing that I, Bernard King, can do this, that I can do this. Even if it hasn't been done, doesn't mean it can't be done. And so it, it, changed me to the extent that I allowed myself to experience life. And what I mean by that, Jason, is each day when I would work for those five hours, six hours, six days a week, five hours, six days a week, during that period, for that two-year period of time, I would close the door after those workouts and allowed myself to start to enjoy and experience life as a whole, everything that life has to offer, and forget about it. Otherwise, you know what it would do? It would just consume you and eat you up, and I didn't allow it to do that. So consequently, coming through that, I became a much better person. 
So you come back uh, very briefly with the Knicks in 1987 in a very emotional moment, and then you move on to uh, the Washington Bullets where you actually played the most games of your career. What stands out to you about your years with the Bullets? Well, what really stands out most is uh, the, the fact that when I joined that organization, I did not have the benefit of training camp, although now it's – think about this for a moment. It's now two and a half years later from post-injury, not two years, two and a half years. Right. And so for two and a half years, I had only played six games. And so now I'm joining a, a new team, a totally different organization, new city, new teammates, a different coach, different system than I had known in the past. And I did not have the benefit of training camp. I had one practice. Never forget it. I had one practice. And I walked through the door. And that first game scored 42 points. Exhibition game, mind you. It's not regular season. But it let me know that the building blocks that I had set in New York for those six games was now coming to fruition. And that that first season, although challenging from a physical standpoint, uh, because I had to really relearn my body in many ways and how I'm going to fit into this new system that I was playing in in Washington. Um, it, it was fantastic. I, I loved it. I was playing for uh, my former coach in Kevin Lockby and then ultimately a Hall of Famer in West Sunsell. And one of the gratifying things that I experienced there that first year, Jason, was this. You mentioned Moses Malone earlier, if you recall. Moses is the most unselfish player I've ever played with. And I distinctly remember a play in that very first game that we played in the opening season where Moses was on the low block on the left-hand side. I can see this now. Visualization is so big to me. I could see the play. And I'm looking to pass the ball into Moses. This is Moses alone on the low post. Pass him the ball. And Moses said, Bernard, no, you take it. You take it, B. He didn't call me Bernard. You take it, B. You take it. And he moved out of the lane and off the block so I could make a move. And I thought later to myself, this was Moses Malone that's saying, take it, B. How beautiful is that? That's a great uh, story. I've uh, Everything I've read about Moses is that he was a nice guy and he touched a lot of people. Of course, he played uh, a lot of for a lot of teams, even more than you did. Wait, yeah, yeah. no, you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. He's the champion. He, he won yeah. the title. He led that Philadelphia team uh, it was, it was Dr. J, and they won the title together. But sure. I recall, uh, Jason, I was at the Hall of Fame, and uh, each year I go back, and the Hall was kind enough to invite me back. And it's always a joy to be around all these great, great players, some you used to watch, uh, some many you played against, and those that are now coming into the Hall, entering the Hall. And Moses and I was seated at a table, and I was seated there first, and then there was an open seat, and he came over and he sat down. He said, anyone sitting here? I said, no, of course, Moses, please take a seat. And uh, we sat and talked for 45 minutes. Now, we had been teammates before, but we had never talked in life like that. Mm -hmm. And the next day, I went off to Connecticut for a charity golf tournament, and Moses was supposed to go off to Virginia and come back and meet us in Connecticut the very next day, uh, 24 hours later. And I came down in the morning, uh, was about to get in the car. I could barely get my left foot in the car, Jason. 
And never forget it, it was Artis Gilmore in the vehicle, and God bless this old Meadowlock Lemon, the former great Globetrotter. And he said, did you hear about Moses? Did you hear about Moses? He had passed overnight. Oh, wow. Um, one last question, actually. Uh wanted to talk a little bit about your uh, final season with the Nets. Um, you had another uh, year and a half uh, off after uh, knee surgery, but you came back for one last run with your uh, first team. And they were an uh, interesting mix of some young players and uh, veterans, uh, Drazen Petrovic, uh, Kenny Anderson, uh, Derek Coleman, and uh, older guys like uh, Rick Mahorn, uh, Maurice Cheeks, and uh, yourself, coached by the uh, great Chuck Daly. Anything stand out to you about that uh, final uh, season or that team? It was a very difficult year for me. Um, I had always been a very good player, other than when I began playing basketball. I wasn't very good. Uh, when I was in the sixth grade. But beyond that point, I was always a pretty good player. Then I became better, and I always was a good player. And for the first time in, 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 in my basketball life, I became a scrub. What I can, for me, at my standard, at my level, what I consider uh, uh, my standard of, of play, I reverted back to little small that sixth grader that couldn't play basketball anymore. That was very difficult to to think of and to handle uh, individually. And as a professional athlete, a lot of people don't, I, I think, probably don't really understand nor know the challenges you may go through individually, emotionally, <laughs> and mentally when you can't play. When you realize you're no longer good, and I wanted to retire right in the middle of that season because I knew I couldn't play any longer. I had a third knee surgery, and I wanted to quit. And it was the first time in my life I ever wanted to quit at something. And I thought I need to see this through. But that's what I remember about that last season. <laughs> Thanks a lot to uh, Bernard King for uh, doing the show. It was great to uh, have it. I really enjoyed the discussion. You can uh, find his book, uh, Game Face, which is uh, released today, November 7th. And so I, I do recommend it. It's a very enjoyable read. And, of course, you can uh, find us on iTunes, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcast. Just search for Over and Back. We're also at the uh, Step Back at Fansided Dot com and we're part of the great stuff that goes on there so thanks for listening and we'll be back again soon